Hello, and thank you for joining this episode of Global Perspectives, a Janice Henderson podcast created to share insights from our investment professionals and the implications that they have for investors. I'm your host for the day, Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy. And today we're digging into all things fixed income with Seth Meyer and John Lloyd. Seth and John are portfolio managers on several fixed income strategies at the firm, including both being on the multi-sector credit strategy. Gentlemen, thank you for being here. You look wonderful. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So the beginning of the year, we were talking about bonds are back. And Seth, I think you were actually demanding Backstreet Boys as your walk-up song anytime you entered into a room. Uh, that's been the message broadly this entire year. The income is finally back in fixed income. We know, however, I want to dig into that because fixed income isn't a uniform investment. There's lots of act ways to access the bond market. And so for listeners here today, let's just get a little bit more specific in terms of what we mean by bonds being back. First, Seth, I want to get to you and just talk about a quick fixed income health checkup. So after the great reset in rates in 2022, what's been the environment like this year in fixed income? So largely in 2023, the, the great rate reset that we all experienced and saw in 2022 has largely continued. Um, obviously, depending on geographic location or how aggressive a central bank has been, but for the most part, depending on where you're looking on the U.S. curve, um, we continue to move with rates higher. Uh, anywhere between 30 or 50 basis points, we've seen rates increase. And, and why is that? Um, the markets continue to wrestle with the same themes we were dealing with with 2022 to a lesser extent, right? We're not going to move from a 1% rate up to a 4% rate. Now we're talking in incrementally. Are we going to end at 45 Are we going to end at 5% in the 10-year I'm speaking? Or is the Fed funds going to terminate it at 55 But the themes have been largely the same. Inflation is starting to roll. That's been very, very clear. Economies are slowing. Uh, I think the surprise in 2023 relative to what we would have thought at the start of the year has been the relative strength. I don't think most were expecting most economies to kind of power through a very aggressive Fed rate hiking cycle the way we have. And then thirdly, how the central banks, regardless of whatever central bank you're talking about, is going to deal with that sort of equation, raising rates, squashing inflation without impairing growth. That's why we continue to see this um, repricing of risk. It's been interesting, though, when you have had rates move as high as we have, we still are talking about core plus bond funds with positive total returns. And the reason is because of your starting yield. This goes back to why we were bullish when we started in January with, with bonds and sort of the cushion that you inherently have today relative to where we started in, in 2022. As a matter of fact, kind of the more down in quality you go, the higher your return so far has been. So best performing asset classes have really been below investment grade corporate credit. You're talking about mid-single-digit yields, and that's because of where we started from. So nothing has really changed. We're closer to the end than we were in January. The market continues to price an aggressive Fed. And if you look at sort of six-month forward expectations in January, we're 50 basis points higher than what we thought we would be in, when we started the year today. Um, but I think we all kind of come to some conclusion that, that the Fed is closer to the end than they were six months ago. So with that, with where yields are, we still believe that fixed income is very attractive and the total return outlook looks pretty favorable. Okay, so 2023 has still been driven by a lot of the same risk, namely in interest rate risk dominating, but we're coming to an end. You got into this a little bit, but John, just more specifically, what actually has worked a little bit better than other areas of the market in fixed income this year? Yeah, I think one of the biggest surprises we've seen is the spread markets, uh, and Seth touched upon this with uh, the low investment grade has worked really well. So 
high yield has tightened in almost uh you know almost 100 basis points um, from the start of the year now we had some volatility with the banking crisis in between on that but um i think it i, I think it the answer of why has that happened is we went through one of the most aggressive fed tightening cycles we've been through and you know at, at one point almost every economist on the street had some type of recession forecasted into into the future in the near-term future right and um, we may be at a point now where Powell has um, a higher chance of, uh, of a, a soft landing where we don't hit a recession. Um, you know, the GDP numbers have been really strong. Um, third quarter estimates are real, continue to be strong as well. And on the other side, you're seeing core CPI uh, inflation starting to roll down. So we may get this perfect balance of the Fed tightening enough where they're bringing the CPI and inflation levels down and it's not hurting growth as badly as investors thought so that's been really really good for for high yield it's been really good for securitized credit uh, especially below investment grade this year um and what hasn't it been as good for we still have rate volatility i think we're as seth highlighted we're at the end of that cycle it's it's hard to say are we finished at 5.5 could we still get one more hike um this year, we 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 could, um, but you're very near the end, and we're we're starting to see interest rate volatility come down. But because it's been volatile throughout the year, and rates have increased, mortgage spreads are wider, and obviously anything with uh, duration, interest rate duration, um, hasn't been as as good a performance as uh, as credit spreads. Okay, so. The below investment grade universe has worked out a little bit more this year. However, as we're coming to the end of the rate hiking cycle, we're feeling a little bit more opportunistic on just more duration sensitive assets. So broadly speaking, it seems like we're so bullish on fixed income. So we have to talk about the big theme that we're hearing from pretty much every client. Money markets are giving you 5%. And that is a pretty compelling number and, and an asset that's pretty sure for most investors psychologically. So I want to go back to you, John, just risk and reward of 5% money markets. Yeah, I think it's, um, I think money markets was really, really attractive as you're going through a Fed um, rate raising cycle, right? Because you don't exactly know when they're gonna stop. You don't know how fast CPI is gonna cool off. Um, and you don't know if they're gonna damage the economy. So it's a safe place to hide. Now that we're at the end of that and we can see what it's doing to the economy, and we're generally, I'd say, at the you know the end of where rates should should level off. There's a lot of benefit to owning duration and adding yield above money markets. So what are what are those? Well, first, the correlation between rates and spreads should revert back to what it was. Um, I think that's been one of the toughest things for fixed income investors is. As rates rise, spreads has have sold off over the last two years. There's no balance there. You know, if the equity market sells off because rates rise, you're not getting that protection in a 60-40 balance type portfolio either, right? Well, our expectations is that should revert now. And duration, if we do go into any economic downturn or softness, duration should provide a cushion, a cushioning benefit, uh, a volatility dampener um, in that type of uh, in that type of market. Secondly, I, I think it's our view that we'll be, I think rates will be higher for longer, but they're not going to be here forever. I don't think we're in a major regime change where the inflation, long-term inflation rate is going to be 3%. 
So as that migrates down to 2%, we should see rates normalize over time. And that's beneficial for the fixed income market um, as well. And then you're also getting, um, in, in certain parts of the market, you're getting a lot of excess spread for taking credit risk right now. Um, there's still a fair amount of fear out there that we won't hit a soft landing. Um, and I think in some markets, spreads are even pricing. And even if we go into any type of, let's say, mild recession, you're getting a lot of excess spread. So that's another reason to move out and take a little more yield than just your traditional money market account. Um, because I think, and you think about fixed income, usually your yield to worst is the return you're going to get a year forward, right? And so in high yield right now, you're at eight and eight and a half percent in securitized credit. You're even higher than that. That's a good forward indicator of, of, of what returns can be in the future. And does this story apply globally as well? So obviously our listeners are global, but Europe is a little weaker. It seems other areas of the region. Is it still a similar story in terms of markets coming to the end of a rate hiking cycle opportunistic to add into duration in most economies? I think I think the interesting part about as we move forward is central bank policy um, by region will start to vary. So we haven't seen it's almost been lock in step, right? Everyone is fighting the same fight right now with inflation. It is clear there's certain regions of the world that are ahead of this game and certain regions of the world's world that are behind. And, and that policy decision making processes will be dictated on one where they are in the cycle. So if you do look at um, Europe, bringing that up as an uh, just as an example, is clearly behind the US and sort of their inflation fight. So it does seem that the ECB may remain hawkish longer than the US than the US Fed will be. Um, the most important part as we kind of look forward is how quickly central banks adjust to what John was talking about. Is it higher for longer? Probably. But who does blink first on the way down? So we'll start to see disparity in policy, which when you think from a global investor's perspective, taking advantage of some of these front end yields because they won't last forever and extending a little duration is probably a pretty good recipe for thinking about total returns. When you start having um, disparity, it's going to create the opportunity that I think investors will be able to generate some significant um, total returns in, in fixed. Something. And, and the other thing that I hear is, Generally, most investors are comfortable understanding that they'll get that total return bounce once the Fed or whatever central bank does start to cut. What about just when they pause? Is there value to just starting to leap into these duration assets just as we're ending? Is there a perfect time to get into yeah. duration? I, I mean, the, the, historically, right, and looking at, at history is kind of all we have is to say, all right, when the Fed has been doing this, so then you get to this point, what happens after? Um, so six rate hiking cycles, right? If we look at the last six, um, when short-term rates peaked, you were better off going long duration at that point than staying in cash. Five out of six of those instances. And then the, the one instance that was even close, returns were really close to each other. Now, that the, the problem with that analysis is typically the Fed oversteps and the Fed has to correct, and that does create this opportunity of total return. Um, I think it's an interesting way to think about um, protection for a portfolio. If, if your returns at worst case, as we look forward, are close to flat where you are at cash, but something does, they, they, they stub their toe, they stumble economic, we stumble economically, the Fed has to get more aggressive in cutting, you have that protection in order to offset some of the volatility you might be seeing elsewhere in your portfolio. That's the way we're thinking about it. It's not about saying, we're really, really bullish duration here. It's about saying, all right, now let's get back into what John was saying. 
correlations are going to start going back to the, the way they were historically. And when that happens and we do or stump, economically stumble, you're going to want more duration in your portfolio. So you got to be thinking about doing that well ahead of time. And now, because we're cresting, at least the theme from if you can't pick up on it between John and I, it feels like we're front end rates are getting to the point that we're starting to peak. If that's the case, you're going to want to be thinking about duration. I would also add to that too. That, I mean, with real rates at the ten-year spot above two percent, that's that's pretty high. Um, and so, I would imagine over time those would come down, and that's the benefit of owning long duration. Just if if the economy even hums along, you don't really need a two two and a half percent real rate range. That should be much lower over time. Okay. Yeah, that's super helpful. I know it's very uncomfortable leaving the sure thing today for something that is a little bit more uncertain, but everything that you both discussed should hopefully give investors that confidence to start to edge out, take that leap um, and go into duration. But speaking of duration, John, again, this is back to the thing. We like bonds, we like duration, but it's not all created equal. So when you're getting down into sectors, you tease this out a little bit at the beginning, maybe mentioning some securitized, but what should investors be thinking in terms of sector implementation? Yeah, I think one of the interesting things in the market right now is valuation dispersions across sectors. Um, you know, high yield in, in investment grade corporates right now are inside the 50th percentile. They're pricing in a, a pretty high probability of a soft landing um, or a very moderate recession. I, I think valuations are still compelling, but they're not screaming cheap at this point. Um, you move over, over to the securitized space, and that's where things are screaming cheap. You can start with the highest quality assets in securitized, which is agency mortgages. Uh, and they're, cha- they're trading at the cheapest levels they've traded versus investment-grade corporates since the GFC. Um, and people ask, well, why is that? Um, one, they don't love interest rate volatility. Um, two, we had some bank failures with the FDIC assuming those portfolios and selling off those mortgage loans as well, which created a huge supply technical in, in the market. So that's created a, a, what we believe is a huge opportunity in the agency mortgage market. Um, and that's reverberated through the entire securitized credit market. So you look at ABS um, and CMBS kind of for different reasons, but basically those markets are pricing in if you go to the, the valuation side, they're pricing in a recession still. Um, and they're near wides. If you look back at recessionary times, whether that was um, 15 with the energy crisis, oil crisis, uh, December of 18, um, when you had the Fed uh, raising cycle, or even the GFC, they're almost at or past kind of through those levels right now. So to us, that creates a lot of opportunity for investing in those sectors. Okay. And so securitized assets, which is generally more difficult to do, um, that market's a little bit more complicated. Access to that we're seeing broadly being a little more attractive as an entry point because of that spread being a little wider. But one concern I do here, Seth, is CMBS. So you mentioned that, John, that is in the headlines with commercial real estate quite frequently. There's a lot of doomsday predictions around that sector. Can you just address those? Do you agree or what might people be getting wrong with that sector? Yeah, I I think, you know, Whenever you have the the fastest rate hiking cycle in recent memory, recent history, um, it's going to create some opportunity, right? And and I think um, CRE, CMBS, Office, Class B, Class C malls, all of these sort of um, kind of thrown them in in a basket of of struggling assets. 
Um, why? It's, it's a direct reflection of, right, these assets need leverage in order to survive. That's actually how you purchase them. You talk about LTVs between 45 and 70%. When, when rates are going higher, it makes it significantly more challenging to refinance, right? So that, that's the obvious. That's the if-nothing-happened problem with real estate. Now, we know something has happened. Um, class B, class C malls, we all go home and there's 17 boxes on your front porch delivered from Amazon from a distribution warehouse that wasn't located there five years ago. And now is a brand new, beautiful building that structurally changed the way Americans consume and purchase and, and move forward as we go through with our lives and really made the need for a class B, class C mall just non-existent, right? The permanent change and structural change to the way we think about retailing in this world. Now, think about with office. So what has happened? Well, the work from home phenomenon, COVID, and the the um, lack of urgency of going back to the office or need really to, to go back to the office has created what we're seeing, which is some of these buildings empty occupancy rates hitting all time highs in certain markets. And there's no doubt about that. This is when you think about sort of the bifurcation, though, of what is actually happening in the broader CMBS market, this ignores sort of themes that are actually benefiting from this. So distribution warehouse is one I mentioned that a second ago. When you think about that from the perspective of leisure or hospitality, hotels, right? Um, you, you can play in the CMBS space in hotels, and we're seeing all-time high RevPAR, which is re, uh, revenue per available room, all-time high margins, the benefit of sort of the, the vacationing we're seeing in this country, or data, data center warehousing. Um, I know one thing for sure is AI will consume more data. When we need to consume more data, I would assume there would be more data warehousing needs. So there's also tangents within CMBS to say, we can really exploit these themes that we like. Cash flow is growing, asset is still there, we feel comfortable owning it. There are troubles, trouble, you know, you think business or um, office space and malls. With office space, just in general terms, central business district office space will be under pressure for years. I, I can't see a way out of it. Um, that doesn't mean your local, you know, your local um, office space for a lawyer or a doctor or, or physical therapist is going to be stressed, but certainly central business district. So how this plays out over the next few years will be really key. We are really focusing on a couple of things. One is location. Um, when we think about sort of investing in the sector, it's all about where you're located. You can't recreate a downtown LEED certified building in San Francisco. It is located in that spot. It is prime real estate. Even with the issues we have in San Francisco, when office does return, they will still share. So it's identifying these marquee assets, whether it be that building in San Francisco, that hotel in San Diego, that casino in Las Vegas, and really exploiting the themes that we're seeing. Because what we have seen now in the past, you know, six, seven months is sort of a um, just a repricing in aggregate of the, of, of the assets, almost indiscriminately regardless of whether you are an office building or you're a casino in Las Vegas. That's what makes us excited. We do think the theme of getting involved in office is still a little too early, but um, we've seen this play out before. Downtowns come back, they figure out their way through these, um, and, and they will location, location, location. It, it does demand capital at some point. The, the other theme I would add to that too is even within office, we really like life, life science. Um, it's something you can't work from home. If you're doing lab work for Pfizer, they sign a 25-year lease. They put in a huge amount of t um, tenant improvements into the into the building, and they haven't figured out how to let their employees do the lab work from home. 
So that's a great area of the market where you're seeing wider valuations because people have allocated away from CMBS based on the fears of downtown San Francisco. It's just important to be picky. So thank you both for that. Summarized, makes sense to start to add in duration today. Makes sense to be very specific on sectors. We're really favoring often a lot of the securitized market over certain areas of the credit market. But let's just get into then the implementation of these ideas for our investors. So you mentioned at the beginning, I think it was you, Seth, just the importance of the starting yield today. So if we're thinking about capitalizing on these opportunities, venturing outside of money markets, which are 5%, which that raises the bar, can you just talk about a little more that importance of that starting yield to be a consideration? Yeah, I think John had mentioned it earlier in the, the podcast. There's very few things that are such a strong predictor of your forward total returns than the starting yield towards the day you bought a bond. Um, and it, it's a very powerful thing because there's, there is a component of the yield you're clipping, but also the dollar discount you're buying. So if you buy a bond right at 90 cents on the dollar, and it's going to mature in five years at par, and you underwrote it correctly, meaning it's not going to file for bankruptcy, you've just locked yourself in two points a year effectively because you need to eventually get to that par number, right? That doesn't even include the yield that you're clipping along the way. So the power right now in today's fixed income market relative to three, four, five years ago is the percentage of the market that is actually trading below par. That's a really powerful thing from an investor's perspective. Your bonds are accreting up each year that goes by because that bond will have to mature at par unless there's a default. So that's when I think about sort of the, the yield to worse is a really good starting, like here's my flag in the ground um, expectation as to what to think about from a return perspective. But the real power to it is how many bonds you're getting that are under par within that portfolio, which is really the juice from an from a investor's perspective to help protect in returns as we look forward. Thank you. And John, what's the benefit then? So starting yield so important. What's the benefit of going into someone active, truly active in this market versus say sometimes coming across just passive allocations, benchmark of an ag in the US as an example, is there a benefit to really going active in this space today? Uh, I think this is one of the best times in my career to be active because we're seeing so much dispersion across asset classes and within asset classes. Um, and so you can go underwrite bonds like Seth talked about that are well under par trading in the high yield market, the average dollar price has been hovering in the high 80s, right? So there are a lot of great companies you can go out there and underwrite and underwrite for alpha at this point if you're an active manager. We talked about the sector dislocations. I mean, CMBS has pretty massive dislocations right now where you can get outsized returns for taking actually on growth investments. Um, that's pretty rare. In, in, in the marketplace. Um, and then just your sector allocation as well um, for strategies that kind of dynamically uh, asset allocate across sectors. There's a lot of alpha to be had right now choosing the right sectors um, that, are, that are cheap. Well, in multi-sector credit strategies and that, that category in general, it does have an additional level of flexibility too over just like the intermediate space. And that maybe provides some opportunity in addition today, given the yield and the below investment grade space. Would you agree? I totally agree. I mean, like, like I said, you can go down, you, 
at times in securitized, you don't even have to go down below investment grade. You can just go down to the triple B space and you can get spreads that are in line with the high yield market today. So, you know, you're looking at, you know, investments that are high yield like in return potential, but are investment grade. Um, and like I said, then you can also make that sector allocation and pick the best sectors and over allocate to them where passive fund doesn't do that at all. Right. Okay. And then Seth, would you say anything in terms of, I mean, the category in general, multi-sector, you get a lot more variety and outcomes from manager to manager, anything that you would have investors be keen on in terms of picking the right implementation there? I, I think within the category itself, I think it's important to identify those true multi-sector portfolios. Um, what we've come across and what we've seen, um, even within our competitive set, are portfolios that stay in one asset class. Um, in order to be truly multi-sector, you need to have um, you know, multiple levels of expertise and, and, and even more importantly, multiple level, levels and levers to pull to generate alpha. That means going outside of one asset class and looking for the opportunities really where they lie. Um, I think about you, even the CMBS question you were asking earlier, being able to identify that individual property in order to actually generate alpha for investors is key, I think, as we look forward, rather than buying a collection of assets, right? Investors get themselves into trouble thinking that way. By buying 10 Class B and Class C malls, you didn't diversify yourself. You actually doubled down on an exposure. Now, yes, regionally you did. You own one in Omaha and one in Des Moines and, and one in, in Philadelphia, but you're still attached to the same tenants. Now, if you can kind of dig in and find that one asset that's going to be just fine through this economic environment, that's where the bottom-up fundamental work that you do, that you look for in an active manager really pays off. So many things to consider, but thank you both for all of those insights. I think that really helps paint a picture on the opportunity in fixed income, but help answer the question of what fixed income do we go into? So thank you both. And thank you for our listeners for tuning in to this episode of Global Perspectives. If you're interested in more insights from Janice Henderson, feel free to download other episodes of the podcast wherever you get them or visit our website at JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Laura Castleton. See you next time. The views presented are as of date published. They are for information purposes only and should not be used or construed as investment, legal or tax advice or as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any security, investment strategy or market sector. Nothing in this material shall be deemed to be a direct or indirect provision of investment management services specific to any planned requirements. Opinions and examples are meant as an illustration of broader themes, but not an indication of trading intent, are subject to change and may not reflect the views of others in the organization. It is not intended to indicate or imply that any illustration or example mentioned is now or was ever held in any portfolio. No forecasts can be guaranteed and there is no guarantee that the information supplied is complete or timely, nor are there any warranties with regard to the results obtained from its use. Janice Henderson Investors is a source of data unless otherwise indicated, and has reasonable belief to rely on information and data sourced from third parties. Past performance does not predict future returns. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal and fluctuation of value. Not all products or services are available in all jurisdictions. This material or information contained in it may be restricted by law, may not be reproduced or referred to without express written permission or used in any jurisdiction or circumstance in which its use would be unlawful. Janice Henderson is not responsible for any unlawful distribution of this material to any third parties, in whole or in part. The contents of this material have not been approved or endorsed by any regulatory agency. Janice Henderson Investors is the name under which investment products and services are provided by the entities identified in the following jurisdictions, a. Europe by Janice Henderson Investors International Limited, registration number 3594615, Janice Henderson Investors UK Limited, 
Registration number 906355, Janice Henderson Fund Management UK Limited. Registration number 2678531, Henderson Equity Partners Limited. Registration number 2606646, each registered in England and Wales at 201 Bishopgate, London EC2M3AE and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, and Janice Henderson Investors Europe SA. Registration number B22848, at 2 Rue de Bitburg, L1273, Luxembourg and regulated by the Commission de Surveillance du Secteur Financier. B, the US by SEC registered investment advisors that are subsidiaries of Janice Henderson Group PLC. C, Canada through Janice Henderson Investors US LLC only to institutional investors in certain jurisdictions. D, Singapore by Janice Henderson Investors, Singapore, Limited, company registration number 199700782N. This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by Monetary Authority of Singapore. E, Hong Kong by Janice Henderson Investors, Hong Kong Limited. This material has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. F. South Korea by Janice Henderson Investors, Singapore, limited only to qualified professional investors, is defined in the Financial Investment Services and Capital Market Act and its sub-regulations. G. Japan by Janice Henderson Investors, Japan, limited, regulated by Financial Services Agency and registered as a financial instruments firm conducting investment management business, investment advisory and agency business and type 2 financial instrument business. H. Australia and New Zealand by Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, limited, ABN 47124279518, and its related bodies corporate including Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, Institutional Funds Management Limited, ABN 16165119531, AFSL 444266, and Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, Funds Management Limited, ABN 43164177244, AFSL 444268, I, the Middle East by Janice Henderson Investors International Limited, regulated by the Dubai Financial Services Authority as a representative office. This material relates to a financial product which is not subject to any form of regulation or approval by the Dubai Financial Services Authority, DFSA. The DFSA has no responsibility for reviewing or verifying any prospectus or other documents in connection with this financial product. Accordingly, the DFSA has not approved this material or any other associated materials nor taken any steps to verify the information set out in this material, and has no responsibility for it. The financial product to which this material relates may be illiquid and or subject to restrictions and at resale. Prospective purchasers should conduct their own due diligence on the financial product. If you do not understand the contents of this material you should consult an authorized financial advisor. No transactions will be concluded in the Middle East and any inquiries should be made to Janice Henderson. We may record telephone calls for our mutual protection, to improve customer service and for regulatory record-keeping purposes. Outside of the US, Australia, Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Europe, and UK, for use only by institutional, professional, qualified and sophisticated investors, qualified distributors, wholesale investors and wholesale clients is defined by the applicable jurisdiction. Not for public viewing or distribution. Marketing communication. Janice Henderson, Knowledge Labs, and Knowledge Shared, are trademarks of Janice Henderson Group PLC or one of its subsidiaries. Copyright Janice Henderson Group PLC. Actively managed portfolios may fail to produce the intended results. No investment strategy can ensure a profit or eliminate the risk of loss. Active and passive investments may both lose value when valuations fall and market and economic conditions change. Fixed income securities are subject to interest rate, inflation, credit and default risk. The bond market is volatile. As interest rates rise, bond prices usually fall, and vice versa. The return of principal is not guaranteed, and prices may decline if an issuer fails to make timely payments or its credit strength weakens. High yield or junk bonds involve a greater risk of default and price volatility and can experience sudden and sharp price swings. Foreign securities are subject to additional risks including currency fluctuations, political and economic uncertainty, increased volatility, lower liquidity and differing financial and information reporting standards, all of which are magnified in emerging markets. Securitized products, such as mortgage and asset-backed securities, are more sensitive to interest rate changes, have extension and prepayment risk, and are subject to more credit, valuation and liquidity risk than other fixed-income securities. Alpha compares risk-adjusted performance relative to an index. Positive alpha means outperformance on a risk-adjusted basis. Basis point or BP equals 1 100th of a percentage point. 
1 BP equals 0.01%, 100 BPS equals 1%. Consumer Price Index, CPI, is an unmanaged index representing the rate of inflation of the U.S. consumer prices as determined by the U.S. Department of Labor Statistics. Correlation measures the degree to which two variables move in relation to each other. A value of 1.0 implies movement in parallel, negative 1.0 implies movement in opposite directions, and 0 implies no relationship. Credit spread is the difference in yield between securities with similar maturity but different credit quality. Widening spreads generally indicate deteriorating creditworthiness of corporate borrowers, and narrowing indicate improving. Credit quality ratings are measured on a scale that generally ranges from AAA, highest, to single D, lowest. Diversification neither assures a profit nor eliminates the risk of experiencing investment losses. Dividend yield is the weighted average dividend yield of the securities in the portfolio, including cash. The number is not intended to demonstrate income earned or distributions made by the portfolio. Duration measures a bond price's sensitivity to changes in interest rates. The longer a bond's duration, the higher its sensitivity to changes in interest rates and vice versa. Quantitative tightening, QT, is a government monetary policy occasionally used to decrease the money supply by either selling government securities or letting them mature and removing them from its cash balances. Bloomberg U.S. Aggregate Bond Index is a broad-based measure of the investment-grade, U.S. dollar-denominated, fixed-rate taxable bond market. A yield curve plots the yields, interest rate, of bonds with equal credit quality but differing maturity dates. Typically bonds with longer maturities have higher yields. An inverted yield curve occurs when short-term yields are higher than long-term yields. Yield cushion, defined as a securities yield divided by duration, is a common approach that looks at bond yields as a cushion protecting bond investors from the potential negative effects of duration risk. The yield cushion potentially helps mitigate losses from falling bond prices if yields were to rise. Yield to worst, YTW, is the lowest yield a bond can achieve provided the issuer does not default and accounts for any applicable call feature, i.e., the issuer can call the bond back at a date specified in advance. At a portfolio level, this statistic represents the weighted average YTW for all the underlying issues. C0923-51409-31525TL